This is Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. Thousands of Americans are currently in prison serving sentences that are based on forensic evidence like fingerprints, gunfire analysis, even teeth marks. Forensics can reveal amazing and game-changing evidence in criminal investigations. But as our next guest points out in his new book, there are also a lot of flaws in the science that can lead to wrongful arrests and life-altering convictions. Brandon L. Garrett is a professor at Duke University School of Law. He's also director of the Center for Science and Justice at Duke Law, which conducts empirical criminal justice research. And he's author of the newly released book, titled Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. Professor Brandon Garrett, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So I, I want to start with uh, just the, the sort of paradigm that I guess we operate with when we think of criminal justice in this, in this country right now. Uh, forensic science is the gold standard in a lot of people's minds in terms of proving uh, the truth, finding the truth uh, in criminal proceedings. And it is seen as much more reliable, for instance, than eyewitness accounts or other kinds of subjective uh, material. Here you're, you're kind of turning that paradigm on its head and saying maybe forensics is better than these other forms of evidence, but it also has significant drawbacks and the potential uh, to be wrong. Uh, uh, talk about that pushback and uh, how you've come to that uh, that conclusion. Yeah, so my Autopsy of a Crime Lab book is designed to really be the reverse of CSI. People <laughs> watch these shows, people assume that there's high tech, that glamorous-looking people in really well-equipped labs are producing these super techno matches that can link trace evidence to nail down who the suspect is or what the weapon was. And uh, and in fact, a lot of what crime labs do is low-tech, and the quality controls look nothing like what you know the clinical lab in a hospital anywhere would have in order to make sure they don't botch strep tests or COVID tests or blood tests or anything else. Uh, there's unfortunately far too little science in our crime labs, but it's not just the labs. It's how police collect the evidence. It's what experts say when they hit the stand and testify. Every stage in the process is unfortunately rife with error and doesn't have the kind of quality controls that that we're all accustomed to when when people in white lab coats test stuff that matters. Mm. So, so give us a sense of how many people you think are in jail or prison today based on faulty forensic evidence. How, how common is this problem? We have no idea because we don't do any audits and we don't know what the error rates even are for a lot of these techniques. Mm. But just to give you a sense, you know, uh, it was just announced a couple of weeks ago that in Massachusetts they're reopening another 70,000 cases with botched drug testing by the two main drug testing labs in the state. It's taken years to unwind that scandal. We've just learned that there are serious errors. There are altered, changed, uh, malleable results in the crime lab in D.C. Uh, in its firearms unit. We have no idea. Hopefully we'll find out over time how far back that goes. Uh, when people raised questions and there were DNA exonerations of people who were convicted based on hair testimony, hair comparisons by FBI agents, the FBI audited 3,000 cases that they could locate and found that 95% involved 
on scientific improper, improper testimony. And so when we've looked, we've discovered really large-scale problems. But, you know, in our criminal justice system, most people plead guilty. And if a lawyer gets a piece of paper saying fingerprint match, firearms match, they'll say, okay, you should plead guilty. And people serve their time and no one even, you know, looks at the forensics. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, when we talk about this this subject, it seems like what you're saying is that the issue is not necessarily the technology itself, but the execution of the technology in the hands of, you know, public officials whose whose agencies often are not well run, uh, not terribly well resourced, um, and and maybe ill prepared to to take full advantage of uh, this technology. I, I guess one question that pops into my mind is if we could do this perfectly, if we could do this at the highest possible level, would we would we be able to rely more heavily on on its accuracy? Is is yeah, it yeah. is it possible to do this in a way that would make it the the, the powerful truth seeker that we've uh, cast it as? I mean, look, there's a lot of concerns about policing in this country right now, and one of the con- defenses is no, you know, we need law enforcement to solve the most serious crimes. Well, actually, you know, what I'm talking about in my book is, you know, we need scientists to help solve the most serious crimes. And we shouldn't be depending on untrained officers to collect evidence at crime scenes, even just at the evidence collection stage. You know, if you're not wearing a mask, you've just contaminated with your DNA. Mm. Um, Crime labs complain that so many of the prints, the firearms, you know, evidence that they receive is poorly labeled, you know, botched at the crime scene. But then when you turn to the labs themselves, they often don't have the resources to really do quality control. Uh, they're overwhelmed with backlogs and poorly submitted evidence. And, you know, the judges have let them get away for years with having someone show up in court and say, well, you know, just based on my gut, you know, based on my training, um, not based on any statistics or research, I say that this evidence came from that. It's an identification. It's a match. And uh, we've just been accustomed for years to letting in evidence in criminal cases with some kind of veneer of expertise, but but no real testing. Mm. We would never let a hospital do that. You know, we would never let people use a toothpaste that had been untested and just sort of based on someone's experience. It seems like a really good toothpaste. I'm sure it won't poison you. Uh, But but in criminal cases, it just sort of it it all goes because, uh, look, no one wants uh, crimes to go unsolved and and everyone has just sort of looked the other way. Yeah, I'm talking with Brandon Garrett. He's a professor at Duke University School of Law and director of the Center for Science and Justice at Duke, uh, which conducts empirical criminal justice research. He's also author of the newly released book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What do you make of forensic evidence, evidence and the role it plays in our criminal justice and uh, in legal proceedings? Uh, do we place too much faith in it? Do we place too much emphasis uh, on it? Uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number here. 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Brandon, here in Detroit, there's been a lot of controversy recently around facial recognition technology, and uh, the city's police department has been kind of trying to incorporate it into investigations. Now they're really mm-hmm. clear about the idea that they don't use this technology. Uh, 
to make positive IDs, that, that, that it's an aid uh, with along with other kinds of evidence. But we had someone on the show last summer who was African-American and misidentified by the Detroit police and wrongly arrested. Uh, I, I wonder if one of the things that's also going on is um, is the limitation of some of these technologies to actually find the truth uh, and, and that, you know, you mix that together with um, with undertrained yeah. and under-resourced police and then you have a, a really serious problem on your hands. Yeah, I don't think it's a defense of, uh, of policing for law enforcement to say, look, we're just using it for leads, so it doesn't matter how reliable it is. Well, wait a minute, you need to know how good your lead is. I mean, certainly sometimes police might take an anonymous tip from a person and they don't know how good it is, and they corroborate it, and they do a lot of extra corroboration because they don't know how good it is. But for police to use an algorithm where they don't know how reliable it is, really, really troubling. And you'd expect extreme corroboration and further backup if you're going to rely on something like that because there's such a concern that these leads slide into identifications. And that's what's happened with a lot of other forensic techniques. You know, it, it may have been that... You know, looking at a bite mark, looking at hairs from a crime scene um, can provide a good lead. And, you know, if it's blonde hairs, then they couldn't have come from my head because I have kind of dark, graying, curly hair. Uh, but there, it, it turned from just providing a lead to these, you know, FBI experts and others testifying in court that those hairs came. It's an identification. It came from this suspect. And there was never any research to support it. And so, you know, I think cities and some states are even looking into whether facial recognition should be used. We shouldn't rely on an expert who's a black box who just says, I've looked at it based on my own head. I say it's it's a match. And we shouldn't rely on algorithms that are black box, mm -hmm. that are untested and not vetted. Uh, any, any more than we should rely on a witness who says, you know, just trust me. Like, I've, you know, I saw what I saw. This person did the crime. And and I also wonder about the, the, the role of bias and cultural yes. bias in these technologies facial recognition technology i think is is really rife for uh, uh the idea ripe for the idea that 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 cultural bias could play uh, a, a real negative role but but some of these other technologies it also seems that again the 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 biases that exist in law enforcement make the technologies um uh not work the way that they're supposed to well, and unfortunately, crime labs, you know, the people who do forensics work, they're not independent scientists. Uh, no one would think that if they're, they're getting a strep test or a COVID test or whatever it is, that the people at the hospital are really biased towards getting a positive result, um, you know, because they really want to treat you for COVID or they really want to treat your strep throat. Uh, the, you know, the person who runs the test has no idea who you are, may not even know your name, has no idea what race you are, what age you are. Whereas in forensics, they may be getting calls at the lab from the detectives in the case saying, this, this dude confessed. You won't believe his arrest record. Uh, you know, the reason why we need these fingerprints and fast is that we want an elm for a murder. Uh, all sorts of biasing information. And we've seen in real cases how that kind of information, which is totally irrelevant to the task of looking at the patterns on the fingerprint, looking at the scratch marks on shell casings, that kind of biasing information causes people to change their minds about their conclusions. There's been a lot of concern in the news, understandably, recently about 
medical examiners and whether they get biased information, particularly in cases of police-involved shootings. And so, you know, we need, we need this scientific work to be truly scientific and independent, and not just in terms of the crime lab being, having its own funding and being separate from law enforcement, but having their information separate so that they're not seeing themselves as part of the policing prosecution team. I mean, that would really be a fundamental change to the way this, this works now. I mean, this is almost all internal, correct, uh, in police departments. Yeah, or it's a state crime lab or a regional crime lab that's funded by law enforcement that reports to the state Department of Public Safety, that kind of thing. Sometimes the crime lab is part of the prosecutor's office, even. Mm -hmm. And you have some independent labs where their funding is independent, but still the only people they report to, the only people they take requests from are law enforcement. So it's basically those are their customers. And uh, there are very few truly independent labs in the country that audit their own work, uh, that take requests from the defense as well as the prosecution. Uh, that's just not the way things normally normally work. Some labs will say, oh, yes, you know, we'll talk to the defense, we'll talk to the prosecution. But then, oh, well, yeah, we'll only actually release our reports to the defense if they have a court order. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge if you're a defense lawyer and you're worried, like, what is this fingerprint comparison? What is this firearms comparison? Is it right? If you want to get your own expert... You can't do it. You can't so just will often say, oh, what's the point? It's scientific. It's fingerprints. Fingerprints are unique. Why would you possibly want your own expert? You're indigent, but it doesn't matter. I'm not giving you the funds for that. Uh, you know, you can ask some questions of the crime lab guy and, you know, educate the jury by asking some questions. But to actually get your own independent test, to get your own expert to testify about what the evidence shows and what the limits are, good luck. And so there's no battle of the experts in criminal cases. It's mostly one-sided presentation of of forensics by the state. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Brendan Garrett, uh, author of Autopsy of a Crime Lab, Exposing the Flaws in Forensics. Uh, it was great to have you here uh, to talk about this subject. Thanks so much for being Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Okay. That is going to do it for us today. I'm going to be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to take a look at how President Biden is doing and achieving his policy and agenda goals as he comes up on 100 days in office. Plus, we'll talk with a local attorney and former DPT officer about the need to demystify the culture of American policing. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk more tomorrow.